We turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, and I'll read. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has seized from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Well, let's welcome Phil as he preaches from this passage today. So, as I mentioned last time I spoke about First Peter, he was writing in a time when Christians were being persecuted. Now, we don't quite know the extent of this persecution. We don't exactly know all of what happened. But First Peter 4 gives us some idea as to what that might have included. And it seems to have included social isolation, insults, and general malignment uh, from those outside of the Christian communities. Now, Peter's response to this, uh, pretty much throughout his entire letter, is in a broad sense to show his readers who they were in Christ, uh, to encourage them to view their new life in Christ differently from their old life before uh, conversion, he tries to explain to his audience uh, not just how to view life differently, but how to do life differently. And finally, he encourages his readers, these Christians, to act in a manner that's pleasing to the Lord. So, if you consider the fact that all of this is happening in a tumultuous time, in a tumultuous place, and, and life isn't easy for these people, this phrase, let me go back just a couple of things here, uh, slides, to get to it. Keep calm and be like Jesus, can, can kind of apply to the entire letter of 1 Peter, but I think it especially applies to uh, 1 Peter 4. So, as Peter didn't waste any time getting down to his point, I'm not going to either. In 1 Peter 4, he directly addresses this sort of idea of living a Christ-like life in the face of what's been going on. Uh, so let's get into it. In the first verse, Peter says, since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arms yourselves also with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now we're not going to focus on this cease from sin part. We're going to focus on this notion of arming yourself with the same way of thinking. Here, what Peter's doing is setting up Christ as the archetype for suffering. Now I spoke about that last time that we talked about 1 Peter 4. But what I want to focus on today is this idea that Peter is also pointing 
to Jesus as the archetype for how to think about suffering. Indeed, Peter wants us to think about what should be our motivation for all that we do. So this is about suffering maybe specifically, but I think he, he's really talking about how we do life. So our motivation for everything. And I want to give a bit of a sort of deeper understanding of what's going on here. So this word thinking, uh, as it's translated, comes from the Greek word ennoian, E-N-N-O-I-A-N. Now this word comes from the feminine noun ennoia, and Strong's concordance, a biblical concordance that many people still use, typically says that in the Bible, this word is usually translated as thoughtfulness, moral understanding, intent, or mind. So when Peter says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, he's really saying to arm ourselves, to arm yourself with the same mind, thoughtfulness, and moral understanding as Jesus. But now we have to ask ourselves the question, how do we know what that looks like? How do we know what it looks like for Jesus. Well, Peter tells us. He makes it very, very clear. And he implies that we are to do as Christ did when he says to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, it might seem obvious, but I think it's important for us to understand what that looks like from an archetypical Jesus-like example. And here's uh, where context comes in. We can look at other scriptures. So we're doing biblical context work here. We can look at other scripture to see what Jesus did and see how Jesus was. So let's do that. Let's start with Luke twenty-two forty-two. On the Mount of Olives, just before he was betrayed, Jesus stepped away from his disciples and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not your will, uh, not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done, Father. There seems to be no question about it. Jesus, in the depths of his suffering, in agony, literally sweating blood, according to verse 42, knowing that he was completely innocent and about to suffer most severely, he was fully obedient to the Father, and making all effort, and succeeding, I should note, to live according to the Father's will. Next, let's look at John 5, verse 30 here. Jesus is discussing his works and the source of his authority. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus went on to say in verse 36, for the, works of the Father, uh, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. We're seeing the trend here. Moving forward to verses 43 and 44, John records Jesus saying, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Here's the kicker. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God. 
It seems clear here that Jesus um, is, is unequivocally pointing to he as a human, as a guy. It's just the guy who's the preacher is not the one who has authority. The Father has the authority. Like, we know Jesus is God, so yes, of course, we know Jesus has authority. But the point is, he's pointing to the Father. He's pointing to the real authority. Let's look at Mark 8.33. At Caesarea Philippi, just after he told his disciples that he was to suffer, and Peter took him aside to rebuke him, Mark says of Jesus, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Think about that. Not on the mind of God, but on the things of man. It seems that Jesus turned this into a teaching moment. He wanted his disciples, but especially Peter, to know that they were to adjust their thinking so as to align with God's will. You see, Jesus' mind, his intention, his entire motivation was to do the will of God. And Peter is telling his readers, he's telling us, to think and be motivated in the same way. And I'd also like to point out that, by and large, the gospel record, the gospels record that through all of his challenges throughout his trial and facing physical death, albeit a temporary physical death, Jesus was, generally speaking, steady, he was brave, and he was quite composed. His response to his environment around him constituted steadiness, braveness, being composed, and ultimately doing what the Father willed him to do, wanted him to do. So, Peter knew this, and his audience, his readers, would have heard about this. And hopefully they would have considered Jesus' outward manner, this composure, when trying to be like him. Let's get back to 1 Peter 4 here. Throughout the rest of this passage, Peter reinforces and encourages his readers. In verses 3 and 4, Peter says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same debauchery, and they malign you. This, I think, is fairly self-explanatory. Peter is reminding these new believers that they've spent enough of their lives pre-conversion living for themselves and making life about their own desires and maximizing earthly happiness, hedonism. That's essentially what Peter's describing here, hedonism. He's saying you spent enough of your life doing that. But now that you're Christians, that's not what you're about. For more context, it's generally understood by historians that this sort of thing, was, this behavior was really common in first century Greco-Roman society. 
behavior was part of celebrations and ceremonies. And much of this behavior was even part of religious rites and rituals for the average Greco-Roman citizen. So to, the, so to those people, you were considered weird and maybe even evil if you didn't live like the rest of them, like a normal Roman citizen or subject did. I'll give you an example. It was often seen as dangerous if you didn't sacrifice to the God who protected your city. Or if you didn't sacrifice to or light incense for the emperor so that he would be benevolent towards your town or your people. The average citizen would have been really suspicious about why you would be refraining from participating in, in, in activities which were basically a big part of the life and culture of the time and the, and, and the place. So Christians, because they did refrain, because they didn't participate in this stuff, almost certainly would have been seen as problematic outcasts by the rest of society, even dangerous for society. And this explains why Peter would be bringing this up. This explains the reason for Peter's letter. Verse 5 and 6, Peter becomes thoroughly pastoral here. And I think what he's trying to do is just be encouraging to his readers and remind them who's really in charge. And Peter's, Peter's kind of getting down, down to a real nitty-gritty thing here. He couldn't have been clear when he says, but they will give account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. So Peter just said in, in, in verse 1 and 2, be like Jesus or act and think the way that he showed us to, to behave. And they knew it just as we know it now, that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. So Peter's being very consistent here. He's saying, be like Jesus, because he's the one who's going to be judging you. Very clear, if very hard-sounding message. He's telling them why it's best to conform to Jesus, because Jesus is the ultimate moral arbiter. And the consequences are clear when you don't conform, when you're not like Jesus. Now, verse 6 is the hardest one of all. It's actually quite difficult to understand. Scholars have been debating its meaning for quite some time. And I genuinely am not very sure about what it means. It, it actually... It's a bit uncomfortable for me. Because... God's word is sometimes so clear and his message is so powerful. And then I come across something like this and I struggle. But I think that given our broader understanding of this idea of being born again and living in Christ and dying in or dying to the flesh and dying to sin, what what we can probably say for sure here is that when Peter says this, he's simply trying to reinforce the beauty 
of the gospel, the good news, the beauty of Christ's salvific work. He's reinforcing this idea that we have been saved. He's driving home the importance of this undeserved gift to us. In these last two verses, five and six, I think it's as if Peter's saying, ultimately, in a a very gentle and pastoral way to us, but maybe hard-sounding to those who are not believers, don't pay any attention to those who are harassing you. God is in charge. He'll take care of them. Because of your faith, In the Messiah, you don't have to worry. Just be calm and be like Jesus. Now, what does this have to do with us today? This is the biggest problem I think a lot of people have with Scripture. Here's another teaching moment. One of the the, the most disturbing statistics about Canadian Christians is that Only one in seven self-declared Christians read their Bible at least once a week. And that's like the minimum. Only one in seven Christians read their Bible once a week. That might not be the case for us here, but that's the broader statistic for the country. And when you dig down in those statistics, one of the reasons why people have problems with the Bible is because they, they struggle seeing how a lot of it applies to us today. And some letter written to people in Northern Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, as Albert said, might seem on the surface to be not so important. You might not be directly maligned or harassed every day. But I think it's happening. You see, we know that the Western world, that Western society is becoming increasingly hostile to biblical values and morals and to Christian, uh, Christians in general. Albert was saying that earlier in the introduction, this is why I don't even need to be here right now. Um, sorry, much love, brother. <laughs> Can't help it. <laughs> um, but it's true. He's right. You know, it's, it's a simple case. And I don't know about you, but if you look at that list that, that Peter gave to, uh, about the behavior for the northern, uh, those Gentiles in Northern Asia Minor there, that stuff, all of that stuff looks a lot like what we see happening around us, like what we see being promoted around us, almost what we see being pushed by the government and forced into culture. And it's really hard to reconcile that with biblical views. And, and The more it gets pushed on people, the more it becomes a problem for us. So, I think, are we going to change? Switch to the next slide, please. There we go. I think that we're in a similar situation to Peter's audience. We're almost instantly instantly maligned if we don't affirm someone's sexuality, their sensuality, their passions, their drunkenness, their orgies, their drinking parties, their idolatry, their getting high, their same-sex relationships. The list goes on and on. 
Jesus is not welcome in our society anymore. At least not the Jesus of the Gospels. If you only talk about a loving Jesus who accepts everyone regardless of their beliefs and regardless of their behaviors and who they're loyal to and what their, where their loyalties lie with regards to their thinking and their morals and values, or a Jesus who said you should love your neighbor as yourself, if you talk about that Jesus, you're all good. But the moment you speak of a Jesus who says that marriage is between one man and one woman, you're homophobic. The moment you speak of a Jesus who said that no one comes unto the Father except through me, you're an intolerant bigot because I don't believe in Jesus, so why would you, you know, why would you not include me? You're not including me. You're, you're not inclusive. You're a bigot. But this is Jesus also. Both of those people, the love your neighbor of yourself, Jesus, and the marriages between one man and one woman, Jesus, are the same Jesus. This is the Jesus of the Gospels who saved us from our sins. This is the real Jesus. And this real Jesus is not welcome in our society anymore. And as I mentioned, this raises a number of challenges for Bible-oriented Christians who wish to live out the gospel honestly. Just as it did for the Christians in Asia Minor back then. Not just with regards to, and this is sort of an important distinction to make too here, not just with regards to being tempted into something sinful because a lot of that stuff might sound fun or because we're being pressured due to the fact that everyone else around us is, is doing it. This is a challenge for us because we're sometimes maligned. And our natural reaction to malignment is to malign back. When someone hits you, your natural response is often to hit them back. So if we're not careful, we risk exchanging sin for sin. And we risk doing damage to the gospel. Without self-control, we risk displaying unchristlike behavior. And that's not good for anyone. It's not good for us. It's not good for the gospel. Not that God needs us to defend him. But our goal is to bring people to him. So if we don't act like him, we're probably not going to be particularly effective at demonstrating who he really was and bringing people to the real Jesus. So here is how 1 Peter 4, 1 to 6 applies to us here today. It reminds us that Jesus was also slow to anger. And that he didn't exchange sin for sin with those who hated him. It reminds us that when, when Peter says, arm yourselves with the same intent, the same way of thinking, the same motivation, Jesus was brave. He was composed. He held it together, even to death, in the face of all of that persecution. And his intent his motivation was the one who sent him. His will was the will of the Father. So what Peter's reminding us here is that in spite of all that is going on around us, 
We are to keep calm and be like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, first and foremost, for your love and your grace. And, and just demonstrating that fidelity to us so purely in Christ. By giving yourself up for us, by being truly and ultimately sacrificial, you have given us the possibility to come to you. And we thank you, Lord, for faithfully preserving your word, for faithfully recording and giving us the ability to have those early records accurately reproduced so that we can follow and learn and know you through them. Thank you for First Peter and for Peter in his, his first letter here, Lord. And thank you for this teaching, this idea that we are to be like Jesus, just like it was for the early church. Things have become tumultuous for us, Lord. We are increasingly facing persecution. It may not seem obvious, but it's happening. And it may be worse in other countries, but that doesn't make it any more acceptable and any more okay or any easier here. But Father, you gave us a Christ that wasn't only firm in your word and firm in your will and taught what you wanted us to know and believe so that we understood your design for us, for the universe, for how things should be. He was also a Jesus who was loving and caring and a Jesus who was slow to anger, a Jesus who was composed, who who bravely faced persecution and didn't hit back. He simply spoke the truth. He wasn't weak. He stood up. He said what needed to be said. He said what you wanted him to say, Lord. And Peter's reinforcing this for us. He's reminding us to be like him, to think like him, which is ultimately to be like you and to think like you, Lord, and to do your will in all that we do, in all areas of our life, in spite of all that we'll face, be it just a small challenge at work or some kind of verbal assault as we, as someone who doesn't like you and doesn't care for your truth, here's us speaking power, uh, truth to power and speaking your word and, and, and attacks us for that, Lord. Keep us calm. Keep us motivated. Keep us aligned emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, and mentally with your will, Lord. So just we, we just want to thank you, Father, for, for giving us Jesus and for giving us the ultimate example of how we should behave in all aspects of life. But in this particular case, a good example of how we should respond to being persecuted and, and to facing head-on challenges with those who would, who would hate us, Lord. And they hate us because they hate you. So we, we just thank you for this, Lord, and we praise you for this message. And we praise you for your work and for all that you do for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.